la cour, the court. Good morning. In the case of Dow Chemical Canada, ULC, and His Majesty the King, and between Iris uh, Technologies, uh, Inc., and Attorney General of Canada. For the appellant, Dow Chemical Canada, ULC, Daniel Sandler, uh, Osnat Nemetz, Laura uh, Jokemski, did I say that correctly? Okay, probably not, in other words. <laughs> um, Lay, uh, for the appellant, Iris Technologies, Inc., uh, Lay Somerville Taylor, uh, Murray Dehab. For the respondents, uh, His Majesty the King et al., Daniel Bourgeois, Krista Aiki and Justine Malone. Thank you. Um, the appellants have 60 minutes shared between them. Daniel, uh, Mr. Sandler. Thank you, Justices. Do the words in the opinion of the minister in subsection 247.10 of the Income Tax Act dictate which court has jurisdiction in a dispute over the amount of tax that the Minister of National Revenue has assessed a taxpayer as the direct result of that opinion? That is the issue in this case. And while this appeal concerns subsection 247.10, which is a transfer pricing provision, and the appellant is a large multinational corporation, this case has much broader ramifications because there are a myriad of other provisions in the Income Tax Act that give the minister the discretion to determine the amount of tax, interest, or penalties that a taxpayer is assessed. And unlike Section 247.10, these other provisions can affect millions of taxpayers. I'm going to interrupt you here and quote you back your article that says subsection 247.10 is the only provision in the ITA under which the correct determination of a taxpayer's income is subject to ministerial discretion. So, uh, Justice Martin, it, it's, it's one of, I think, maybe two or three provisions. This was pointed out by the, by the tax court judge that determined the amount of income and therefore uh, the amount of tax. But there are other provisions that I will be dealing with that under which the minister can waive a tax, for example. Uh, other provisions under which the minister can waive interest or penalties. And all three of those amounts, tax, interest, and penalties, are amounts that the minister assesses 
under the Income Tax Act. Well, there are other provisions where the minister has discretion to accept expenses, the deduction of expenses or not. There, I, I don't think there are others that deal specifically with expenses, but there is a provision uh, in Section 111, as I recall, dealing with losses, yeah. where the, the minister has some discretion to adjust amounts. Um, but I, I think the, at least the provisions that can affect a lot more taxpayers are the ones dealing with the waiver of tax. Uh, which I will provide an example of when, uh, in my submissions, and, and interest and penalties. But I guess the point, your point is that the discretion in 247.10 of the minister is to be exercised in accordance with tax law principles, and that is properly a matter for the tax court. It's not a matter for the federal court. That is an integral part of the assessment. The result is reflected in the assessment, and that is why it should be before the tax court to be reviewed as part of the assessment. I, I agree with that, uh, Justice Jamal, but I, I don't think that goes far enough in the sense that any time the minister exercises a discretion and, for example, does not waive penalties or interest or a tax, where the taxpayer has requested those amounts to be waived, equally are reflected in an assessment that is issued by the minister. Can I ask a follow-up question? Um, and this is... Uh, I apologize if this is an ignorant question, but what's really going on here? Because we've got the taxpayer trying to have the matter dealt with in an integrated manner before the tax court, and the minister saying fragment, and ordinarily it would be the other way around. You'd see the taxpayer trying to fragment something to slow down the assessment or whatever. So what is really going on? In why is the, apart from the issue of interpretation and jurisdiction, what is going on in terms of the, the backdrop of the taxpayer trying to have this in an integrated manner and the minister fragmenting it? Uh, the concern, Justice Jamal, is that the taxpayer has been assessed. Okay? And as a consequence of being assessed, the taxpayer is obliged to issue uh, a notice of objection to the minister. Because under the Income Tax Act, under subsection 152.8, once the taxpayer is assessed, that assessment is deemed to be valid and binding, subject only to uh, being vacated or varied on objection or appeal. So only the tax court actually has jurisdiction to deal with the assessment itself, which is why the taxpayer wants to be in the tax court, because only the tax court can give an effective remedy to the taxpayer. But Mr. Sandler, how do you reconcile your position in this case? with the line of cases saying that uh, the exercise of the discretion by the minister is the, the process, the assessment is the product, and we should not mix the process with the product. So there, there is a line of cases, obviously, that, that, that do say that. I'm not sure that Marshall McLuhan would have agreed with that. No. The medium is the message, but anyway. <laughs> but, I guess the point that, that, that I want to make is that there is a process, certainly the, the audit of a taxpayer, for example, is part of the process. The conduct of the minister and the minister's delegates during that audit is part of the process. But when it comes to the issuance of the assessment itself, there are, and, and uh, I will be getting to this in argument, but I will address it now, there, there are three fundamental things that, that the minister has to make a determination of before issuing an assessment. Okay. The minister has to assume certain facts. 
The minister then has to interpret the provisions of the Income Tax Act and apply those, uh, apply that interpretation to the facts. And the third point, which is not one that comes up in all cases, but it comes up in some cases and it comes up in this case, is that under certain provisions of the Act, the minister has the discretion to determine an amount that directly impacts the amount of tax, interest, or penalties that are assessed. I'll let you finish now. Yeah, so our, our position is that those three items are inextricably linked to the assessment. And because the tax court has exclusive jurisdiction over the assessment, all three of those items should be dealt with by the tax court. So what I was going to ask, and Justice Martin opened the door by pointing to your learned article, why do you then close, with, on the heels of the point you've just made, close your article suggesting that we, the, tax, the Parliament amend the Tax Act, amend 247, 10, and 11 to, to make process and product of a piece? So, uh, I, I'm not suggesting that, that all process and products should be of one piece and all go to the tax court. That, that certainly is something that Parliament could do. What I am suggesting is that all matters that are inextricably linked to an assessment should be dealt with by the tax court because the tax court has exclusive jurisdiction over the assessment. I'm going to give you a, a scenario and I just want to know what happens to an assessment in this case. So if um, a minister's decision gets quashed and uh, the minister is ordered to make a new determination under the Act and it chooses uh, not to, to move forward, it doesn't do an adjustment, what kind of an impact does that have on assessment-wise? So if you're dealing with a federal court ordering the minister to qua like the federal court quashing a decision, is that what you're referring to? Yes. Okay. So because the federal court has no jurisdiction over the assessment, that assessment is still valid and binding and is binding on the taxpayer and that leads to all of the repercussions under the Income Tax Act that apply to a valid assessment. The minister can take collection action for it and the taxpayer can only, as I said, can, really, can only dispute that assessment and can only get relief from that assessment either through the objection or appeals procedure. So is it the original assessment we're talking about? It's the assessment that would be under objection. And, and the concern is that if the taxpayer does not object to that assessment and goes straight to federal court, even if the federal court ultimately determines that um, the minister exercised her discretion inappropriately, and quashes the decision and refers it back to the minister. The minister may not be able to issue a reassessment because the only way the minister can issue a reassessment is if, is if either the year is still open, is during the normal reassessment period, which likely will have uh, gone by by this point in time, or if there is an objection or appeal. So there always has to be, in effect, an objection or appeal in order to allow the minister to vacate the assessment or vary the assessment or 
reconsider and reassess. So the respondent in Justice Jamal, you, you referred to this, um, that the Federal Court of Appeal in their decision below and the respondent here is asserting that the taxpayer must separate the assessment from the minister's opinion reflected in that assessment and deal with each of those separately and potentially in two different courts. Something that the Federal Court of Appeal itself acknowledged in its decision at paragraph 91 that was the likely outcome of the case. This we submit creates confusion over jurisdiction. It results in unnecessary parallel proceedings in two courts and it ignores the words of this court in its 2007 decision in Addison and Layen. And I'll, I'll refer you to tab seven of the uh, appellant's condensed book. At page 22, which is page 799 of the decision, starting at the third line, the integrity Tab 7 at page 22. The integrity and efficacy of the system of tax assessments and appeals should be preserved. Parliament has set up a complex structure to deal with a multitude of tax-related claims, and this structure relies on an independent and specialized court, the Tax Court of Canada. Judicial review should not be used to develop a new form of incidental litigation designed to circumvent the system of tax appeals established by Parliament and the jurisdiction of the tax court. Judicial review should remain a remedy of last resort in this context. But Mr. Sandler, the, your friend on the other side, they are saying the remedies available in the tax court are not uh, appropriate to deal with uh, the exercise of discretion by the minister. What do you say on that? So I, I suggest to you, uh, Justice Cote, that in fact the remedies available in the tax court are, are um, available, can apply. In particular, the, um, uh, an order to reconsider the assessment and reassess the taxpayer. And in fact, that, I would submit, is a better remedy, a remedy that better addresses the concern of the taxpayer, which is the amount of tax that has been assessed, than the remedy that the federal court could give. At some point, what you get to is the standard of review. Yes. And it just seems to me that if uh, the taxpayer ends up in the federal court on a judicial review, you're in Vavilov world, okay? And reasonableness, et cetera, et cetera. If you end up in the tax court, in effect, considering, I won't say we're reviewing, considering the the exercise of the minister's discretion which led into the assessment, you're not in judicial review world. You're in, maybe you can correct me, but I'm just going to say how it seems to me. You're now in 
appeal world, not judicial review world, and the standard of review is not reasonableness. It may be the standard of review which under an appeal relates to the exercise of discretion. It, and it's formulated differently, it, it, which, which, it, which indicates to me that this whole thing is even more peculiar if, if you kind of go through door A and you get one standard of review and you go through door B and you get another standard of review but you're really looking at the same step taken by the minister. It gets really quite peculiar indeed. Or have I misconceived that point about standard of review? I, I don't think that you've misconceived the point. But I'm suggesting that a tax court judge can just as easily as a federal court judge apply that standard of review in the context of an assessment. Which standard of review? Well, <laughs> it would be, it could be the standard of reasonableness if we're dealing with the exercise of ministerial discretion. But is, is, is the standard of review on an appeal reasonableness uh, in a, when you're talking about the exercise of discretion? My understanding of the general law in terms of uh, an appeal, not judicial review, an appeal, the exercise of discretion is reviewed on a standard something like error in principle, failure to take into account a relevant factor, taking into account a relevant fact, taking into account an irrelevant factor, or the exercise gives rise to a manifest injustice or something like this. This, this, this is not the standard which is used in judicial review. But this is why I'm saying if you're in judicial review world, you've got one framework, whereas if you're in appeal world, you've got a different framework. And, and to say that, oh, uh, when, you ha when you have an appeal, we'll use the judicial review standard. I mean, uh, it's, it's trying to use a, uh, an imperial wrench on a metric bolt. Uh, my, I, my friend alluded to the same thing when he suggested that we were trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. But, uh, but I don't think that that is necessarily the case. My, my friend also said, while the process under the Income Tax Act is referred to as an appeal, and the taxpayer files a notice of appeal and is the appellant in the tax court, and His Majesty the King is the respondent in the tax court as opposed to a plaintiff and defendant, the tax court in many uh, respects acts as a court of first instance. It is making determinations, ultimately making determinations of fact, but it starts with the facts that are assumed by the minister, and it's up to the taxpayer to disprove those facts. Similarly, I would say when I, when I look at the three items that I had referred the court to before, the, 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 the assumed facts, the interpretation of provisions of the Income Tax Act, there's no deference given to the minister in the interpretation of provisions of the Income Tax Act. The tax court will come to its own view as to the determinate, or as to the interpretation of those provisions and the application of those provisions to the facts as the court determines. So it's more akin to a de novo review is, is what I think I hear you're saying. It's more, I'll call it a modified de novo review in the sense that there are assumed facts. The, t the minister does not have to prove any facts. Right. 
the, minister, the, the, the minister's assumed facts are considered to be correct unless, in the words of the, the jurisprudence, the taxpayer demolishes those assumptions of fact. Mr. Sandler, in this case, the denial uh, by the minister of the downward the transfer of pricing adjustment, uh, the exercise of that discretion, was it based on uh, her interpretation of the treaty between Canada and Switzerland? On a provision of that treaty? Uh, our position was that their interpretation of the treaty was incorrect. 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 So you would apply a correctness standard to, well, to that? or when, when it, Well, e even in the context of Vavilov, for example, when you're applying a reasonableness standard, if a court makes, or, or a tribunal makes it, uh, an error in the interpretation of the law that is applicable, that is considered to be an unreasonable decision, and, and that would be reviewable. Okay. But what standard, just to come back to Dr. Mr. Uh, just, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Justice, sorry, Justice Rowe's point. What is the standard of review that the tax court is going to apply in reviewing the, in, 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 reviewing the minister's exercise of discretion under 247.10. Is it correctness? Is it reasonableness? Is it more or less deferential than it would be on judicial review in the federal court? I would suggest that the standard of review would be reasonableness. And I don't think it would be any more or less deferential than the standard of review that the federal court would apply in the same circumstances. It is just that, and maybe I'll just finish this point. It is just that, the Federal Courts Act, under Section 18.5, gives the tax court exclusive jurisdiction if the Act of Parliament, in this case the Income Tax Act, provides a right of appeal to the taxpayer. And the Income Tax Act clearly provides a right of appeal to a taxpayer over an assessment. So yes, it's called judicial review when it's before the federal court, but that same sort of standard can be applied by a tax court if a tax court is dealing with a discretionary provision that directly impacts the assessment. That but you acknowledge that if uh, the discretionary uh, provision does not relate to an assessment or ultimately does not result in any assessment, then you would acknowledge that the federal court would have jurisdiction? Yes, I would. But that, that same circumstance arises, can arise in other situations. Mm -hmm. So let me give an example. A taxpayer files a tax return and is assessed exactly as filed in the return. So that assessment is out there. Two years later, the taxpayer discovers that they made a mistake in their tax return. So they file an amended tax they, return? They file an amended tax return. There is no obligation of the minister to assess that amended return. And even if the minister looks at that amended return and decides, no, I disagree with you, that would also not result in an assessment. So in those circumstances, you would likewise end up, your only recourse would be to the federal court. In judicial review to say, please, uh, reassess, please assess my amended tax return. Yes. So I, I'm not suggesting that this case is a panacea for all of the gaps that are in the Income Tax Act, and there are other gaps mm -hmm. that are there. What I am suggesting, though, is that where the minister has issued an assessment, the tax court should have 
and does have, frankly, under Section 18.5 and under Section 169 of the Income Tax Act, exclusive jurisdiction over everything that is inextricably linked to that assessment. Can I ask you about that inextricably linked? And, and um, So your colleagues on the other side, if I understand correctly, paragraph 61 of their factum, contrasts the minister's assessing function on the one hand um, with what's happening here, saying that the tax, the tax Act delegates decision-making powers to the minister that are animated by policy concerns, including considerations of fairness as opposed to strict adherence to law. Um, and on that basis, proceed with their argument. Is, 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 that, is that relevant, the, 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 this idea of a delegation of decision-making powers to the minister that are animated by other concerns? That I, I do not think that it is relevant, uh, Justice Cazare. Um, there are um, numerous other provisions in the Income Tax Act that have nothing to do with the collection of tax and, in fact, have everything to do with government spending that are provided for in the Income Tax Act. So uh, investment tax credits for scientific research and experimental development. Effectively, the, the Minister of National Revenue is, is dealing with policy considerations when the Minister is making decisions about whether a taxpayer has carried on scientific research or whether particular expenditures have been incurred for scientific research. Another example, and I'll, I'll, I'll use this as an illustration for our purposes, registered retirement savings plans have everything to do with motivating taxpayer, um, particular actions by a taxpayer, putting money into savings for retirement. That has nothing to do with the collection of tax, yet all of the provisions dealing with RRSPs are administered by the Minister of National Revenue. The Minister may, may make assessments for example, if, if, if the minister considers that investments that you've made in your RRSP do not qualify, and those certainly go to the tax court. All of that is animated by policy considerations, and the tax court deals with those. Where do, where do things like, this is just a question, a factual question, where do matters like remission uh, go? Do they go to the tax court or to the uh, federal court? Uh, well, uh, remission, as I understand it, goes to cabinet, um, and it's only cabinet that can um, remit a tax. Um, if a taxpayer was looking to review the decision of cabinet, the only place I think that the taxpayer would be able to go in those circumstances would be the federal court. So let me, let me give you an example that, that I think illustrates, uh, I, I think, the issue quite nicely. Um, the minister sends a proposal letter to a taxpayer proposing to assess tax on an over-contribution to a registered retirement savings plan. So that's dealt with under Part 10.1 of the Income Tax Act, um, provisions of which are found at Tab 3 of our condensed book. And the tax that the minister is proposing to assess, which is found in section 204.1, subsection 2.1, is quite an onerous tax. It's 1% per month of that over-contribution 
from the month in which the overcontribution is made until the time that that overcontribution is removed from the RRSP. The taxpayer reviews what the minister has provided and realizes that a mistake was made when they made the contribution to the RRSP. The minister is right. There was, a, there was a mistake. It could have been, for example, because the taxpayer had a pension plan from their employer as well as their RRSP, which can complicate how much your contribution room is. They made a mistake. They write a letter to the minister requesting that the minister waive the tax, which the minister has the jurisdiction to do under section 204.1 subsection 4, which is found at the bottom of page 8 of our uh, condensed book. And the taxpayer writes to the minister, looking at the words of that provision, indicating that they made a mistake, a reasonable error. And now that the minister has advised them of that error, they have taken that excess contribution out of their RRSP. The next communication that the taxpayer receives from the minister is a notice of assessment of tax under Part 10.1 of the Income Tax Act. Does the taxpayer have 90 days to file a notice of objection to that assessment, which may be appealed to the tax court? Or must the taxpayer file an application for judicial review within 30 days of receiving that notice because that notice constitutes communication of the minister's decision not to waive the tax? Or must the taxpayer do both? And surely the taxpayer should not have to do both. And for many individuals and small businesses, that's the sort of situation that often comes up, where the taxpayer is seeking to have a tax waived, the minister denies waiving, the minister seeks to have interest or penalties waived, the minister denies waiving them. And the taxpayer wants to dispute the amount that has been assessed because they believe that it is too high. Where that amount is below certain thresholds, so $25,000 per year, there is a quick and low-cost informal procedure process available in the tax court where the taxpayer can be self-represented or represented by an agent. In contrast, if, the, if as the respondent suggests, the decision not to waive the interest or the penalties or the tax can only be challenged through judicial review, then the one-size-fits-all procedure of the federal court applies. And that will be more costly, more burdensome, and indeed more intimidating. Well, and totally impractical for $25,000. And, and totally impractical for $25,000 or $2,000. And on top of the impracticality of it, if the taxpayer is not an individual, so if the taxpayer is a small corporation that is wholly owned by an individual or a family, that taxpayer will have to retain counsel in the federal court on the application for judicial review unless the federal court orders otherwise. May I just ask you, 
what you're saying obviously is is the policy about the relationship between the tax court how the the principles on which it's set up to deal with the correctness of assessments and the alternative universe of judicial review um, but um, from our perspective are we being asked to just deal with 247.10 and the downward pricing um, and the interpretation of that or is the claim that you're making or what you're asking us to do is broader than that where you're suggesting that the tax court should be recognized as having jurisdiction over any ministerial uh, discretion that has an effect on the assessment, the taxes, the interest, the penalties, etc. Ultimately, that is up to you and your, your decision, but certainly from the perspective of what I had suggested at the outset, the importance of this case, very few taxpayers are going to be impacted by Section 247.10. Many taxpayers are affected by the provisions dealing with waivers of tax, interest, or penalties. So I would... Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking of the three categories in paragraph 171 that you alluded to. And 247.10 is one of very few provisions that actually um, affect the amount of tax that's owed through an assessment, the others being more like your fairness um, example uh, that arise after the assessment. So is, is that a way to differentiate? like the third category, which is very few kinds of discretions that, that um, affect the actual ta amount of tax owed through an assessment, so, as opposed so, to the other two? Uh, so, Justice Karakasanis, that, that was certainly the distinction that the tax court judge made. But maybe just to address one element of your, your question, um, where you ask the minister to waive a tax, and the minister does not waive the tax and issue the assessment, they're making that decision before the issuance of the assessment. They're not making the decision after the issuance of the assessment. So I, I would suggest that all of those categories are the same in the sense that where the minister is making a determination, whether to apply a fairness provision or not, whether to apply section 247.10 or not, those decisions are made prior to the issuance of the assessment. So a decision under 247 subparagraph 10 will always result in an assessment? No. No? No, not necessarily. A um, decision denying the downward uh, adjustment? A, a decision denying the downward adjustment may not necessarily result okay. in an assessment. Um, a, a simple example, if, if the taxpayer, after being assessed, discovers two years later that their transfer pricing methodology that they believe was inappropriate and consider there to be a, a better transfer, transfer pricing methodology that would give rise to a lower amount. Then the taxpayer, just like in the example I gave earlier, would file an amended return. Or it may be okay, the situation... Okay. situation like that. Right, it may be the situation where another jurisdiction assesses the counterparty to the taxpayer and then it's up to Canada whether to provide um, the, the equivalent downward relief. And again, if they decide not to grant that relief, it would, it would not result in an assessment. So there won't be an appeal at the tax court because it does not res uh, result in an assessment, but it can be the subject of a judicial review. That's correct. But the federal court would probably uh, say we're not going to 
uh, judicial review that because it's hypothetical, it yes. doesn't impact anything, it's a declaration of fact, has no practical utility, wouldn't uh, they? It, it, well, I would say, Justice Jamal, it depends on the circumstances. If, if for example, it was uh, something that came up in the context of a mutual agreement procedure and the governments of Canada and the, the foreign jurisdiction agreed to the upward adjustment in the foreign jurisdiction and a, and a downward adjustment in Canada. Um, I don't think the, the federal court in those circumstances would necessarily look at that as a hypothetical situation because there is an agreement, an international agreement that has been entered into between two governments and it's a question of whether Canada is going to implement its side of the agreement. So when the discretion is exercised, so when the, uh, the discretion of the minister is exercised independent of an assessment, then you don't say that this is the jurisdiction of the tax court because the Federal Court of Appeal in uh, J.P. Morgan said that when the exercise of the discretion is independent from an assessment, then this is the jurisdiction of the Federal Court. But when the exercise of the discretion is not independent of an assessment, but will result, result eventually in an assessment, then this is the exclusive jurisdiction of the tax court. Exactly. So this is what the Federal Court of Appeal has decided in J.P. Morgan. Well, yes. J.P. Morgan was not dealing with a discretionary I know, provision. I know, yeah, but they said, they said something. They referred to discretion in that case, although they were not dealing with that. Yes, they, although they were referring to discretion in the context of whether the minister may assess or not. Yeah. But, but I would suggest it is the same principle because the only jurisdiction, the only exclusive jurisdiction that the tax court has is over assessments mm. under Section 169. And all, well, I shouldn't say all I am saying, but all I am saying is that they should have exclusive jurisdiction over all of the assessment over everything that is inextricably linked to that assessment. But that can be a very broad category about what's inextricably linked of necessity in the future. And I understand that you have a very wide understanding of the whole tax act. And in your article, you do say, if there's no assessment, it's judicial review. And it makes me question, as someone with less experience, well, isn't the goal of always an assessment at some part, at some point. Um, and so when you're talking about inextricably linked, you might not have an assessment now, but will you always have an assessment? Is it always the ministerial decisions under 247.10 and the ones that you're talking about, the RRSP, will they not always inextricably lead to an, excess, uh, an assessment? Uh, well, I, I, again, they won't necessarily. They won't. Okay. They won't. Because, again, if the, if the taxpayer has already been assessed. No, I get that. But right. it's just in anticipation. Give us some more information. Give us some more information. We won't assess you until we have this information. The minister makes decisions. This is allowed. This isn't allowed. That's sort of what I'm thinking yes. about. So, so in those sorts of situations, effectively dealing with the, the audit, Ultimately, it will result in an assessment or a reassessment. You know, just th this idea of inextricably linked, I'm still stumbling over, and largely because of the arguments of the respondent, who says, and I'm, I'm at 58 and 59 of their factum, 
They say that you are viewing the discretionary decision of the minister as entwined with the assessment of tax and thereby taking an overly simplistic position that ministerial decisions that affect a person's tax liability can be appealed to the tax court, that when making an assessment of, a ta of tax, the minister determines the quantum and no discretion is afforded the minister there, citing authority, including J.P. Morgan and, and our recent decision in Collins Family Trust. Mm -hmm. what's, what's wrong with that? Where, where does that break down, that, that entwined, not entwined idea? It, it's almost as if the, the exercise of recording what should be in the assessment, that's for the tax court. But the d discretionary decisions that contribute to that potentially outside of the tax court because they're not necessarily entwined, if I understand correctly. That, that is certainly the position that, that my friend is taking, Justice Kaiserre. I don't think that is correct because I, I come back to the point that I raised earlier. The minister assumes facts. I don't think anyone would disagree that those assumptions of fact are inextricably linked to the assessment and that the tax court has jurisdiction in effect over determining what the facts are that are going to be applicable. Similarly, the tax court has jurisdiction over the interpretation of the provisions of the Income Tax Act. Again, that is something that the tax court uh, will make its own determination of, but the minister's interpretation is certainly something that the minister decided upon. And, and again, that is something that if I, if I was dealing with a provision that did not have any discretion in it, and maybe I'll just provide another example. If I go back over the, the history, there were many provisions in the Income War Tax Act originally where the minister had discretion virtually over everything that determined the amount of income of a taxpayer. So there was a provision uh, in the Income Tax Act, a, a general limitation on expenses that, that effectively said, and this is section six sub two of the Income War Tax Act, that an expense may be disallowed or, any, uh, may dis, or the minister may disallow any expense that in his discretion um, uh, is in excess of the amount that is reasonable. We now have a provision today, section 67, which is effectively doing the same thing, except it's no longer a discretionary provision. It provides a standard. It says that an expense incurred for the purpose of earning income from business or property is not deductible except to the extent that it is reasonable in the circumstances. So the minister, in the first case, is clearly given the exercise of discretion. In the second case, under today's Income Tax Act, there is no explicit discretion given to the minister, but certainly the minister is making a determination, a decision about what is reasonable in that case, and that would clearly go to the tax court. And just as easily as a provision that was discretionary has been turned into a provision that is now a standard, it could easily be turned around the other way. Now, Mr. And, and oh, sorry, just finish. To, sorry, Justice Carrick Cassana. So just, just to finish the point, it's that change between those two things, which both deal, as 
my words inextricably linked to the assessment, clearly where it's a standard, there's no question that the tax court has jurisdiction. So why should it be any different where the minister has the discretion to determine that amount? I was simply going to say to you, I don't know how you've divided your time, yes. but you have 18 minutes left. Thank you, uh, Justice Garrett-Cassanis. We, we had divided our time, and I, I guess the court was not informed. Uh, we have divided it 45 minutes to us and 15 minutes for my uh, friends who are representing Iris Technology. But I, I, I will just, since I am down to a couple of minutes, take the opportunity to, to wrap up a couple of points. So in our submission, the respondent here is just the same as the taxpayer that made the over-contribution to the RRSP. And the respondent here, sorry, sorry, the appellant here is just like the, uh, the, the taxpayer that made the over-contribution. The respondent here and the Federal Court of Appeal, in our view, are the ones that are over-complicating the issue of jurisdiction by upsetting the scheme put in place by Parliament that gives exclusive jurisdiction to the tax court over disputes of assessments of tax, interest, and penalties. The requirement to parse the assessment from the underlying exercise of discretion limits the jurisdiction of the tax court. It can deny access to justice at worst or at best require parallel proceedings in the federal court and the tax court. The respondent suggests at paragraph 53 of their factum that the taxpayer can avoid parallel proceedings in the tax court by filing a waiver in order to allow the minister to issue a reassessment if the ultimate outcome of the judicial review is favorable. But this misses the point that an assessment has already been issued and that assessment is deemed to be valid and binding and only the tax court uh, can deal with it. Would it be fair to say, just uh, in in a question arose when you were talking about the historical evolution from the Income War Tax Act to the current act and the reasonableness of expenses. Would it be fair to say that it is an overstatement to say that um, the minister doesn't exercise discretion in the administration of the act and that much as there has been an evolution in the law towards uh, making it more certain, fairer, transparent, that at the end of the day, you can't get rid of it no matter what you do. There's going to be discretion in the administration of the act in making assessments and that those matters, despite the clearest, most explicit legislative drafting, are always going to be, exist and that they fall within the jurisdiction of the tax court. Is that an overstatement? Uh, no, I, I think that's, uh, that's a very good uh, summation of, of the point. So I, I just want to return, um, and I will finish here, to the words of this court in its more recent decision of the city of Windsor, okay, which is found at tab nine of our um, condensed book, and particularly at paragraph 26, which is found at page 28, the last page of the condensed book. Justice Karakatsanis, in your judgment, you wrote a paragraph. 2016? <laughs> well, 
Okay. Some For time tax has law, passed. it's recent seven years. Go ahead. The essential nature of the claim must be determined on a realistic appreciation of the practical result sought by the claimant. The essential nature of the appellant's claim in this case is that the assessed amount of tax is incorrect and the taxpayer wants to be reassessed. Only the tax court can provide an effective remedy while the federal court cannot. And that should be determinative of jurisdiction. Thank you. Please accord. The appellant has asked, what if any court has the authority or jurisdiction over the conduct of the minister? But the more important concern from the perspective of the appellant is that if there is no court that exercises this supervisory jurisdiction, who checks the Minister of National Revenue or any government actor? We will hear from the respondent, or we have heard in fact uh, that the minister is, the, is of the view that for the purposes of the Excise Tax Act, the assessment is the quantification of a liability, but for the purposes of the exclusory provisions of the Federal Courts Act, an assessment incorporates or assimilates into it all of the underlying decisions that go into the making of the assessment. And so in its simplest terms, if the minister is correct, and without intervention by this court, all that matters is the how much of the assessment. It does not matter how the minister assesses. In, in our submission, that gives rise to cause for significant concern. We have a hole in the administrative scheme, and the hole in the administrative scheme is determining, analyzing, supervising, and correcting the conduct of the Minister of National Revenue. The tax court, notwithstanding early indications that uh, unyieldy behavior ought to impact the correctness of the assessment of tax before the tax court, has consistently held that the conduct of the Minister of National Revenue in assessing is irrelevant to the correctness of the assessment of tax. It is not properly before the Tax Court of Canada. So how can it be that the only thing that matters is the quantification? Yeah, we have well, asked. Well, but how can it, because, because taxation is all about how much you have to pay, right? I mean, isn't it? Well, how can it be all about, uh, you know, what you're assessed? Because that's what it's about. I mean, if, if I have to pay 1000 versus 2000 I'm, I'm not sure I care if the minister gets out a Ouija board. Right? I mean, it's like, is it two or is it one? But if it's $100 million on the eve of an evidence under oath that the minister has no basis for assessing, and if it's found in the context of a piece of legislation that deems the assessment to be correct, and immediately imports all the sequelae of that assessment, including the immediate collection of that amount, and defers until a higher court on a trial essentially de novo. But isn't, isn't this just a recipe for deep-pocketed uh, uh, parties to ensnare the minister and the government in the assessment process in an endless series of interlocutory proceedings to, to put off the evil day of assessment? 
and, and, and to just gum up the machinery of, 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 of the government in terms of collecting taxes. The relief sought by the appellant in this application, which was struck before it was heard, was a bare declaration. And it was a bare declaration relating to the rights of taxpayers that was intended by its primary utility to be preventative. The bare declaration to have an impact on an assessment. The bare de declaration would have an impact not on the correctness of the assessment where no coercive remedy is sought, but the fact that there is no coercive remedy that, that is sought cannot be a bar to considering whether or not that declaration should should be made or should be considered, or whether the adequacy of alternative forms or the, the impact of that assessment uh, gives rise to consequences that ought not to be tolerated, where we have a society governed by a rule well, of law. Well, it can't be a bar, but perhaps, but it's got to give caution, give rise to a court uh, exercising considerable caution before it allows a matter, simply because the taxpayer says, well, I'm not challenging the assessment, but I'm going to be seeking judicial review of the minister's conduct, even though I could have taken it to the tax court, I've decided not to. And uh, so maybe you could speak about each of the three grounds that you've raised, the, evident the evidentiary foundation and proper purpose and procedural unfairness, and what, tell us why the Federal Court of Appeal is wrong on each of those three grounds. I certainly would like to hear about the that. They all essentially tie back into the same, which is that an analysis of the minister's conduct in raising an assessment is divorced or meaningless absent a consideration of the correctness of the assessment itself. And requesting, as we have, an analysis of the propriety of purpose, requesting, as we have, a confirmation that there is an entitlement to procedural fairness in an audit is not something that, that is related to the correctness of the assessment because, as this, as this court held in Western Minerals, the minister is the one who decides the amount of work that goes into an assessment that before it is issued and before it is raised. Why so does it matter whether there's evidence for the assessment if uh, you're not challenging the assessment? I mean, I don't understand that. And why does it matter if the minister's assessing uh, in a procedurally unfair manner if the assessment is correct and that you could have challenged that in the tax court? I, it becomes an abstract question. I recognize there may be exceptional circumstances where you don't want to wait three years or four years for a massive assessment and there may be a, a good reason to have an interlocutory, if I can use that word, review. But in the ordinary course, surely the arguments that we just heard from Mr. Sandler weigh in favor of letting the tax court deal with those issues and, ta and taxpayers raise those in the form that has the expertise and um, when it can do so in the context of the assessment. I, we, we certainly do not disagree that the specialized court has the expertise to address 99.9% of all cases. And unfortunately, that, that simply isn't our case. Our case is that extraordinary case. Our case is that less than 1%, where most taxpayers, not just taxpayers who have, uh, have resources or uh, capacity, need some assurances. And so in the Tax Court of Canada, if the Tax Court could grant a remedy on this particular and extraordinary facts in our case, we would withdraw the appeal because there would be at least some so, judicial body. Isn't so there a, oh sorry, I'm just going to ask if there's a follow-up on Justice Jamal's question. Isn't there a qualitative difference between um, the, the procedural fairness and the improper uh, allegation and the absence of evidence in respect of its connection to correctness of the assessment. It seems to me that they're not all, all the same. 
the, the, the question of procedural fairness, whether or not there is a basic content to procedural fairness and whether it has been met on our case, in our view, is the same as determining whether or not there has been a right that is abrogated, which can be done on a declaration. The question about whether or not the assessment was raised without evidentiary foundation or contrary to the evidence speaks di directly to the power of the minister to assess. Because the, power, the minister does not have the power to assess outside of the rule of law. The minister has the power to assess in accordance with the facts as she understands them and the, and the law, the facts as she finds them and the law as she perceives it. And we have this extraordinary case where there is findings under oath of no findings to support an assessment, let alone a proposal to assess. And then on the eve of the hearing of an application for mandamus pending an audit, an immediate assessment of $100 million and $24 million in penalties. So the question then comes back to your request, the remedy of a declaration, which is a, a, an unusual remedy, um, usually granted where there is no alternative means to redress uh, breach of your rights, but it also has to be effective. You said earlier that you wanted a declaration because it would protect all taxpayers. I'm just asking you why a declaration? Why would it be effective in this case? Why are you seeking one? And the if, if you're saying that you are not interested in the, the assessment itself, but in some kind of a declaration. As, as a tax litigation lawyer, I have my own personal experiences to bring into that uh, case, but what we see is what the ministers advance in this case, which is it doesn't matter. Our mental process is irrelevant. It is a trial where you get a chance and you can determine whether or not our assessment should be sustained on other grounds. And if we look at the timeline in Dow, we have a 2017 appeal to the Tax Court of Canada, and here we are in 2023 still debating the question of jurisdiction which taxpayers can survive an eight-year odyssey to get to a question of threshold of the determination of the correctness of the assessment. And this court has held for more than 100 years, or Canada has held for more than 100 years, that that bare declaration's primary utility is in its preventative effect. And so we were asked at the Federal Court of Appeal, what would you do? Would you hang this on the wall? And what we asked is, or what we asked this court to consider is, what happened after Baker? Was that decision hung on the wall, or was there substantive and meaningful change in the way the minister discharges her duties to assess pursuant to the Excise Tax Act and the Income Tax Act? And that is the relief that we seek. That is what we anticipate, because courts anticipate that the minister or the parties will abide by the declaratory relief sought. And what is done with it, whether or not there's a subsequent claim for coercive relief that is not to set aside or quash the assessment, is built in to the legislation as it exists. Sections 18, section 18.1, they provide for the declaration or the coercive remedy. They're not required. Otherwise, there would not have been room for this court's decision in British Columbia Investment Management to issue a decision on the declaration of a party's rights. And if it should be, that this court, or on a full record, a federal court reviewing what, what matters in the context of an assessment should find that there are no rights, then that should be done with full knowledge, with full submissions, with full evidence on the propriety of alternative remedies, on the capacity of a damages or a tort claim to remedy early defaults, because the relationship between a taxpayer and the Minister of National Revenue is a lifelong relationship. We see an assessment as an ongoing procedural 
periodic affair and assessment is raised, and then immediately the consequences of the act come into effect. And for our purposes, the Federal Court of Appeal in SIFTO contemplated specifically that a declaration that a penalty was not properly assessed would be relevant specifically for a determination or challenge to a minister's subsequent attempt to collect that assessment. And so if we have a Federal Court of Appeal recognizing an inherent utility to a declaration between the propriety of an assessment, that must mean that there is something here that impacts future conduct. And that impact on future conduct is what we submit should be subject to judicial review and not insulated from judicial review by the sheer fact that the assessment has been raised and the Tax Court of Canada has no jurisdiction to look at why it was raised, the factors that were considered, the assessments as they were found, and whether or not they're supported by evidence subsequently determined. The Let's say that it goes to the federal court on your judicial review, although you're not challenging the correctness of the assessment. But in order to get the declaration you want about the behavior of the minister or what the minister should do in the future if he wants or she wants to do that, they will be obliged to make up their mind about the assessment that you decided not to challenge. They will, don't you think that they will be obliged to say, yes, the minister in this case did not behave properly, did not follow, uh, did not give procedural fairness, made errors, uh, and they will be obliged to make up their mind about this assessment because they need to determine if what, uh, if the conduct of the minister in this case uh, was proper or not. The, the, in the order for them to determine for the future what the minister should do, they would have to uh, give their opinion about what the minister did. Was it uh, okay or not? And even if you're not disputing the correctness of the assessment, they will have to say something about that. And is it their jurisdiction to express a view about the correctness of an assessment? The, the, the question about the correctness of the assessment um, it, it asks questions that are greater than the context of what the, what, the, what the appellant or our applicant seeks here. What we have are a finite and specific set of facts for which there is no alternate remedy. And so does the federal court to say, no, you have an entitlement to be a participant in the um, a participant in the proceedings were giving rise to an assessment of tax, or that the minister's power in raising an assessment is not to exceed the scope of its fact-finding and law-making in the and law-applying in the course of raising that subsequent assessment. And so we see that there are exercises of discretion in the minister's application uh, throughout the Excise Tax Act. We've heard of a significant number of them this morning. And to say that that discretion is not reviewable simply serves to insulate and set a dangerous precedent and a license Isn't it a dangerous precedent to say that any time you're not seeking to challenge the assessment, you can take the minister to federal court? Because your argument, um, while um, it has a, a, a logic to it, it would actually uh, allow for an application for judicial review in any case when you're simply saying, well, I don't like the way the minister's dealing with us. Let's go to tax, let's go to the federal court and then maybe we'll get some leverage with, uh, in, in this year, in a future tax year. Isn't that the concern that's running through the Federal Court of Appeals decision? Um, because by be seeking a bare declaration on these three grounds, you can repackage this and roll it out for any, any large tax case, I would have thought. And that seems to me to be the concern. A hundred years ago, the same question was raised in Dyson, which was, should we be looking at the, the 
the creation of an alternative forum to challenge assessments in any other forum where this, there is this risk that there is going to be a flood of litigation. And the court's first comment was that we can cure that with costs. And the second comment was to look at the balance of convenience. How can you have, how can it be inconvenient for servants of His Majesty the King to have no forum when there is no right of appeal from that, uh, that exercise of discretion and where there is, as we have seen evidence in the fact of, and the minister's positions in both applications before, both appeals before this court, a reluctance to a turn to judicial review. And so that question was addressed more than 100 years ago and in our submission it has not changed. Those forums are still available. The court will take its morning recess 15 minutes. Thank you. Please be seated. Yes, Mr. Bourgeois. Question before the court, where we're going to start with Dow Chemicals, of course. The question before the court is whether the Tax Court of Canada and not the federal court has jurisdiction to review the Minister of National Revenue's discretionary decision to deny tax relief in the form of a downward transfer price adjustment under Section 247.10. Crown's answer is that the federal court has exclusive jurisdiction to review the exercise of discretion under an act of parliament unless parliament specifically provides otherwise. Only the federal court can displace the uh, minister's decision under Section 247.10 with its exclusive powers to set aside and refer the matter back for determination. There's a vast body of case law that delineates the jurisdiction of the federal court to review this, the exercise of discretion and the tax court's jurisdiction to hear appeals from assessments. The appellant portrays these decisions as imposing arbitrary limits on what should be within the jurisdiction of the tax court. The Crown says that the issue of jurisdiction should be decided by giving effect to Parliament's legislative choice under the Federal Courts Act. Bourgeois, you yes. said that uh, the Federal Court has the power to remand the file to the minister for the exercise of discretion, but the tax court has that power too. The, the difference between the powers of the Federal Court and the powers of the Tax Court of Canada is that the tax court must dictate the outcome of the reassessment. Whereas the Federal Court can refer the matter back for a new decision respecting the principles of administrative law and not substituting its opinion to that of the minister, the Tax Court of Canada's power is to send back for reconsideration and reassessment. Mm -hmm. Now those words have been interpreted from the beginning of the jurisdiction of the Tax Court to mean that the Tax Court must dictate the terms of the reassessment. In other words, it's not sending it back 
and leaving it to the Minister of National Revenue to determine how to reassess. Reassessment in the context of the Income Tax Act means the amount of tax. This court in Ocalta Oils 1955 said, an assessment is the amount of tax, it's not the process. Yeah, but they are also talking about reconsideration. Can the tax court just say to the minister, sir, you failed to, to, to take into account relevant factors in your interpretation of the, of the act or of the treaty. Please reconsider taking into account that you have now to take into consideration those factors. Can the tax court say that to the minister? The tax court cannot say that. It must dictate the terms of the reconsideration, but it must order a reassessment as well. And that means a change to the amount of tax. And that's how the tax court is always disposed of an appeal. And it makes complete sense because the powers, an appeal to the tax court is not in the nature of an appeal per se. It's a trial of first instance where the tax court is settling a dispute between the parties as to the tax liability of a taxpayer. It considers of, uh, you know, evidence. It is not based on the record that was before the minister. The, minister, the Tax Court of Canada does not review decisions of the minister. Can I ask you this? I mean, you say the standard of review is reasonableness. If the tax court were to decide that the minister's discretion had been exercised unreasonably, and it then sends it back for reconsideration and uh, reassessment, isn't the minister then obliged to do so in accordance with the reasons of the tax court? Doesn't that result in the reassessment. Uh, you're talking about the Tax Court of Canada? Yes. Well, the Tax Court of Canada would be, that the, the minister would be, would have no discretion left, would be told, please right. reassess on the basis that the appellant is entitled to a downward transfer pricing adjustment of $3 million. That, that is how an appeal to the Tax Court of Canada is disposed of. The minister would be told that that is the reasonable that the uh, alternative was not reasonable and that the reasonable determination in light of uh, tax uh, principles would be, um, you know, as dictated by the court. Like, why is that different from everything else that the tax court does? Well, it would be not different from what the tax court does, but it would be different from any court uh, exercising judicial review jurisdiction does. A, a court of, uh, that's reviewing a discretionary... That, that's a, sorry, that's a circular answer. The question is, can this uh, provision, uh, the, the exercise of discretion by the minister in this case, be reviewed as part of, a, of assessment review by the tax court? That's the question before us. Right. And your answer to me is no, because it has to be judicial review. But well, there's two different routes here that are being proposed. Mm -hmm. One is judicial review, and the other is as part of a reassessment by a tax court. So my question to you is, why is that qualitatively different than, say, reasonable expenses, where the tax court has to determine what's reasonable and what isn't reasonable? Well, that's, that's a good example, and I wanted to get to that. Um, Section 67 says that a taxpayer is entitled to a, de a deduction to the extent that the expense is reasonable. What's the difference between that and Section 247.10? When the taxpayer goes to the tax court, the taxpayer does not have to displace the minister's determination 
that the expenses were not reasonable. The, the taxpayer simply is entitled to the tax treatment based on the evidence and based on Section 67 of the Act. And no one cares what the minister's interpretation of Section 67 was before the Tax Court of Canada. Under Section 247.10, it's a provision that provides a certain tax treatment, a right to a downward transfer pricing adjustment, but only if one condition is met. And that condition is that the tax court, uh, that the Minister of National Revenue must have favorably exercised her discretion to grant the downward adjustment. The entitlement to the deduction is based on the Minister's exercise of discretion. That is very different than all the other decisions or findings that the Minister makes in assessing tax, where the taxpayer is simply simply goes directly to the tax court and convinces the court that on the facts and on the law, the taxpayer is entitled to a particular So you've treatment. set out the factors that the minister uh, must consider in, in uh, I think it's in paragraph 64 of your factum. And I, 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 when looking at those, I wonder, don't those all relate to tax policy considerations that seem to me to be, uh, have to be exercised in accordance with tax principles and that they should be matters that are reviewed by the tax court, which is the specialized body. It seems to me to be odd to say that these factors in 64 should be before the federal court. Um, and then I guess a related question is, does your, does your uh, argument then uh, turn on the fact that the, uh, the, 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 reass the word reassessment in 171.1b three means uh, that the, the uh, court has to actually specify what the proper reassessment is rather than a reassessment in accordance with the court's pr the principles that the court would enunciate the tax court would uh, would enunciate right the, the, the crown's point maybe if I can just backtrack the fundamental argument that we're making is that even if we stretch the words of section 171 to give those remedies some breath that would allow the tax court to deal, dispose with, uh, of an appeal while respecting administrative law principles. Even if we stretch the word of an assessment under 169 to give the court an entirely new administrative law function where it's not concentrated on determining the tax liability but reviewing whether the minister has made errors of law or palpable and overriding errors of fact. Section 18.5 of the Federal Courts Act provides that unless there is an express right of appeal from a decision of a federal board, commission, tribunal, and that would include the minister's determination under 247.10, unless there's an express right of appeal under an act of parliament, the federal court have it, has exclusive jurisdiction to grant any relief against a decision of an administrative decision maker. So that's the... That's okay, okay. I mean, how you plead this case is up to you, right? How you plead this case is up to you. But when I was a much younger person and I was being instructed as to how to persuade a court, the, the, what I was told was I should educate the court. I should cause the court to understand and by causing them to understand, to see the logic of my position that I'm advancing. You're telling us that it's always been done this way, that there's a blight line rule, and just kind of accept it. 
what is the logic of what you're setting out? I mean, in, you're, you're telling us as if there is, we're, we're, we're supposed to defer to authority before the Supreme Court. I mean, it, we will exercise the authority in determining these things, and the fact that it has been dealt with in a certain way until now is not a sufficient argument to persuade me. What is the logic of your position? How does this fit together in anything other than a game of snakes and ladders for the taxpayer? Well, the, the Crown's point is not that it's always been done that way. It's that that is Parliament's intent, as spelled out in the provisions of the Federal Court Act. Section 18.5 is really Parliament's attempt to fix the, juris, uh, the jurisdictional boundaries between the tax, the federal court, and other courts. And so we have to give effect to the words of that provision. Uh, that being said, uh, I just wanted to point out, uh, before I get to get back to section 171 uh, and the, uh, the nature of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, the policies that are applied, if I could get the court to turn to uh, tab two of our condensed book. Uh, I wanted to ex uh, give an example where Parliament has decided there will be certain decisions of the minister uh, that uh, will be uh, appealed uh, to the Federal Court of Appeal. We will remove the exclusive jurisdiction of the Federal Court and we will provide an express right of appeal as per section 18.5. And one of them is section uh, 172, um, sorry, uh, 172.3, which is at page four. Page four of tab two of our condensed book. From A to I, you have a list of decisions of the minister, the minister's decision to revoke uh, the registration of a charity, for, ex for example. Those decisions can be appealed to the Federal Court of Appeal. When Parliament wants to remove the jurisdiction of the Federal Court, it, it does so expressly, and that's what Section 18.5 tells us. This is not what was done here with 247.2. Uh, when we look at the yes, nature- but, but Parliament, we, when we interpret legislation from Parliament, we assume that they have a coherent scheme, and you're saying, don't turn your mind to whether this scheme is coherent. Just, just look at it and say, unless there's a sufficiently express exclusion or, or, or conferral of authority, um, it, it all goes to the federal court. End of question. That's it. Don't look any further. And, but I feel obliged to look further to say, why do we have a tax court? Why is the tax court situated as a specialized tribunal to deal with these matters. If there was no tax court, I'd get it. But there is a tax court, and, and, and why would Parliament intentionally what, do what appears to me to be an artificial division between uh, the matters that relate to an assessment that go before the tax court and the matters that feed into the assessment that you say, no, 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 tax court can't deal with that. It has to be the federal court. What's the logic of it? And you're not giving me an answer to that. You're just saying that read 18.5 of the Federal Court Act, end of story. Well, we would say that it is not an arbitrary division. This court in Vavilov tells us that courts must respect Parliament's 
uh, choice to delegate authority through legislation. This is what Parliament did in Section 247.10. That signals this determination as one that is separate and apart from the minister's duty to assess tax. It's a different function. It is, it is in the decision under Section 247.10 uh, is informed by policy considerations and not tax considerations. So I, if I get back to your question, uh, Justice Well, aren't, aren't they tax policy considerations, though? Um. Well, ta t policies, uh, the, the basic uh, consideration is that of fairness. Like many other of these discretionary decisions, it's based on fairness. The Tax Court of Canada does not deal with fairness. That is not a consideration that they are dealing with. They're simply applying the facts to the law. Here, when the minister is exercising a discretion under Section 247.10, it's determining, would it be unfair to allow this taxpayer to, uh, to be subject to tax in Canada and having the same transaction subject to the same amount of tax in some other jurisdiction because this other country imposed an upward adjustment? Those are not tax considerations. Those are fairness considerations. It, ended up, it ends up in an assessment. I'm sorry? Uh, but when yeah. the, there is a decision made by the minister under 247.10, and it, uh, most of the time, I would say, it has an impact on an assessment. It, it, it you will acknowledge that. Uh, so if the minister denies the uh, adjustment, it may not result in an assessment at all. But most of the time it will. If chr chronologically, but if the, well, that only means that if it's in the course of an audit and the minister just happened to need to finish its assessing function and, and issue an assessment, as in this case, there will be an assessment that reflects the denial of the minister to allow a, a, tra a, a transfer pricing adjustment. But what the assessment simply reflects is not the, ex it's, it, it reflects the fact that the taxpayer is not entitled to the adjustment. The default position under section 247.10 is that a taxpayer is not entitled unless that condition is met that the minister has favorably exercised her discretion. And we so agree with that, but that exercise of discretion, it is not disputed that it, it is not unfettered. It can be reviewed. Mm -hmm. The problem is where should it be reviewed? Should it be reviewed before the tax court or before the federal court? And just to complete Justice Cote's question, Mr. Sandler was rather harsh with you, gently said, <laughs> of course, but with your criticism of the position that a discretionary decision of the minister would could be uh, uh, entwined or inextricably linked with the assessment of tax. So I'd like you to, to address that. It's just as part of your answer to Justice Cote. Well, the reason why it's not inextricably linked is because Parliament tells us that only the Minister of National Revenue can exercise, make that decision. But it, it is, can be reviewed. It, it can be. It's not, uh, he does not, it's not gospel. His decision, the exercise of his discretion can be reviewed. You acknowledge that? Yes. We just need to determine which right. jurisdiction. Well, let, let's this. look at the tax court, yeah. the powers of the tax court, the nature of an appeal uh, to uh, the tax court. An appeal from an assessment is an appeal from an amount. Um, since 1955, the court has understood that 
the tax court's role is not to review decisions of the minister. Uh, it's a first level trial. It is not an appellate court. Uh, and so it's never had this function under Section 169 that's been interpreted for many decades in the same way uh, to review decisions. And now the question is, can't it review uh, discretionary decisions of the minister? We submit that it, it is simply not part of, an appeal, in, of, of a, uh, an appeal to the tax court to review decisions. And even if we, and then we look to Section 171. Can the court, does the court of Canada, the tax court of Canada have the tools to dispose of an appeal while respecting this fundamental administrative law principle that the court cannot substitute its opinion to that of the decision maker. And we submit that on the text of the provision, it does not. So What's, what, how is it different in kind? How is it different in kind than what uh, Mr. Sandler told us about how a deduct, deduction of reasonable expenses? And I guess a related point um, which goes back to Justice Rowe's uh, question to you. What mischief will it cause if the tax court has this jurisdiction that is being sought uh, by the appellants? Concretely, what mischief will be caused? Well, uh, so your, your, your first question, the difference in kind between the reasonableness, it's simply that when the taxpayer uh, is seeking to, when the taxpayer is arguing that the expenses were reasonable, there is no, Parliament did not set out its intention to require a taxpayer to first displace the minister's application of that section, it's section 67 of the Income Tax Act. Here, Parliament clearly uses clear language to say, with respect to downward adjustments, uh, first of all, only the minister can make the decision. Number two, the minister is not going to be bound to apply tax principles. Because the tax principle that would apply in a situation like a downward adjustment is this. Essentially what the appellate is seeking here is saying, we negotiated favorable, an, a favorable interest rate with an, a related company in another jurisdiction such that we paid $3 million less than what we would have paid had we be dealing at arm's length with another. Therefore, the appellant says, we want a $3 million deduction. From a pure tax principle point of view, that makes no sense. Taxpayers who earn more profits because they've negotiated favorable terms should pay tax on those earnings. Fundamental principle is that you're taxed on based on what you've earned. Uh, the reason why a downward adjustment would be granted would be other principles that it have nothing to do with the computation of income or the computation of tax. It's it has to do with Canada's relations with other countries. Sorry. And so the duties that are performed when the minister assesses tax. There is no discretion. The minister simply is adhering to the provisions of the act, and it's a very important that that duty to assess not be uh, uh, entwined with jurisdiction, uh, with the discretion, because it's important that every taxpayer be treated the same way. When the minister applies a discretionary power, that's 
no longer the primary consideration. Considerations are of fairness. Uh, considerations are of our relations with a, another country, our international treaties, etc. And so it's a fundamentally different function and it cannot be lumped in with uh, an assessment. What is the difference? I'll come back to the uh, example about the reasonable expenses and the deduction to, to, to be claimed or that a, ta a taxpayer can claim. The minister may look at this and say, oh no, it's not reasonable. What is that? So if the minister does not accept the, the deduction claim for those so-called reasonable expenses, is it not exercising a discretion? And that exercise is reviewable by the tax court because the, the taxpayer will file an appeal and say, hey, you have to accept my deduction. No, the minister is not exercising a discretionary Who decides power. what is reasonable or not? Well, the minister makes findings of fact, uh, and, and, and so there, but, but it's not a question of discretion at all. Just like we wouldn't say that the tax court's decision is discretionary, although it considers evidence, it interprets various provisions of the law, but it's not the true exercise of discretion. Parliament has not delegated the decision-making power over what is reasonable under Section 67 to the minister. Who decides? When, uh, uh, when, uh, it, somebody, when a taxpayer claims that deduction, and the minister, l'Agence de Revenu du Canada, does not accept this, mm -hmm. send a notice of assessment. Who makes that decision that minister. they were not reasonable, those expenses? The, the minister makes that decision, but that decision is completely irrelevant before the Tax Court of Canada. It's no longer, we've seen the minister assess based on repealed provisions of the Act. There are tons of decisions that say it doesn't matter. Before the tax court, the issue is, what is the tax liability? The minister's choices, mental reasoning, are immaterial to a taxpayer's tax liability. Therefore, before the tax court, the issue is not, did the minister properly apply section 67? It isn't. And that's how an appeal is disposed of at the tax court of Canada. There is no regard, no difference for the minister's thoughts or opinions or findings. Well, can I ask you this? I'd, I'd like to go back to Justice Jamal's question. Um, your, your response to his question was that the minister is not just bound to apply tax principles. There are other questions of fairness. or uh, I'd like to understand what those other uh, issues of fairness are that do not relate to tax principles. Well, as I explained, there is no tax principle that would justify allowing a deduction to a Canadian taxpayer because of excess profits realized in Canada. That is completely antithetic that the well, of the well-accepted principles that taxpayers are taxed based on the legal relationships that they freely enter into. And so it is, it is not a, it is not a, a principle that, that is being applied to uh, to, to administer and enforce the act in, in the minister's assessing uh, I guess uh, position. Now, uh, I'm probably going to reveal my ignorance, but my understanding is that part of the purpose here is to make sure that the tax gets paid, because we're in, specifically in this section, we're dealing with um, transnational uh, um, transactions, and also in the normal case, if, if one party pays more tax, 
and the other party pays less, Canada still gets its tax. So those are the kinds of considerations that make sense to me. What other kinds of, uh, I, I'm just not quite understanding, so I'm, I'm just perhaps you can try answering it in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. Well, the purpose of transfer pricing rules is to prevent profits from being sent offshore. That's the purpose. Uh, but the purpose of the exercise of discretion under 247.10 is that Canada is, is prepared to leave some of the tax that should go to Canada on the table for considerations of fairness. Because we've entered into a treaty with S Switzerland where we've agreed that we should try and not subject our uh, taxpayers to double taxation. Canada might say, well, given that Switzerland has given a, has increased uh, the amount of interest income of the, the, the lender, we'll, we'll recognize that uh, our Canadian taxpayer uh, uh, should pay more interest and therefore will give tax relief in Canada. So that's not a tax principle, you're saying? That is a fairness principle. When the minister decides to assess based on GAR, is he exercising a discretion or not? He is not. Okay. If the minister is wrong, the Tax Court of Canada will be right there to, to, to explain to the Attorney General of Canada that the position that they're presenting is not in accordance with the facts and the law. Uh, the exercise of discretion uh, is something that is not in, inferred. It is based on Parliament's intention in, a, in, in legislation. And it's quite easy to differentiate the exercise of discretion by the minister through these various provisions because they use words that leave no confusion in the opinion of the minister. So I want to come back to section 171 because we ask you more questions. And you say that the tax court uh, is obliged to dictate the outcome yes. if the discretion is, if the exercise of the discretion of the minister is reviewed by the tax court. But when I read 171B3, when it says referring the assessment back to the minister for reconsideration, and in French, pour nouvel examen, how can you say that this means that uh, the tax court is going to dictate the outcome when I say, minister, Please reconsider, or Monsieur le Ministre ou Madame la Ministre, faites un nouvel examen. Well, because the, 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 the tax court order will not set the amount of tax payable. I understand, I understand, because they say, please reconsider. If I ask somebody to reconsider, it does not mean that I'm dictating the outcome. I just ask, please reconsider. I, I agree that if the provision only said for reconsideration, that would be the case. But the function of the tax court and its role is to finally dispose of the appeal with that judgment and not to delegate back the disposition of the appeal to the minister to reassess based on uh, an exercise of discretion. And so reconsideration does mean reconsider because it, it, it means that the, the, the tax court will be providing directives such as there should be an increase uh, of X amount in certain deductions. This company should not be considered to be a Canadian controlled private corporation. The minister would be left to do the calculation, but there will be no discretion and the final amount 
of the, the assessment will have been dictated by the, 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 mm. uh, the directors of the tax court of Canada. Is, the, is, the, is it your position then that the, because I asked about the mischief, is it your position that the tax court is institutionally ill-equipped to deal with a question of um, whether the discretion was properly exercised under 247.10 as part of an appeal from an assessment, that it's institutionally ill-equipped to deal with that question? Well, I, I don't know uh, if, if, if by institutionally ill-equipped uh, you're referring to the expertise. Uh, I, I mean, I, uh, the Tax Court of Canada uh, does not apply administrative law principles. The question of whether a particular interpretation of the Act is within a range of acceptable outcomes, that is not a question that is, never, that is ever raised at the Tax Court of Canada. Whether a, uh, the justification of the minister is intelligible, this is not a question that's ever been raised at the Tax Court of Canada. So it, is, it would be a, a brand new, I, I would say, it's, it would be a completely new administrative law function that would be uh, tacked on to what is essentially a, an action before the tax do, court. Do the trial. three circumstances to help, just to follow up, three circumstances in Iris in which you'll get to, I, no doubt, help answer Justice Jamal's question in the sense that two of the three problems, the, the, uh, the procedural fairness, the improper exercise of authority, appear to be the normal bread and butter work of the federal court. Whereas the third, the, about whether there was the minister's assessment is supported by the evidence, looks closer to correctness of the assessment and would fall more squarely in the tax court's jurisdiction. The mischief might happen if that went to the federal court where some federal court judge would be perhaps out of their depth, whereas in the other two circumstances they would be fully within their, their ordinary, the ordinary work that they do in other fields and immigration law and, and so forth and so forth. Well, Sorry, it strikes me that Iris presents a way of looking at Dao um, that sheds light on Dao. Well, uh, in Iris, it's the conduct of the minister that's being impugned. And uh, whereas the conduct of the minister is generally irrelevant uh, at the Tax Court of Canada, the a Tax Court appeal provides adequate and alternative relief to that because it will provide, even if there was no evidence in support of an assessment, it will provide uh, a chance to, to, uh, to, to adduce all the evidence that's relevant. It will give uh, a litigant the full procedural guarantees um, I'm not sure how it informs Dow. I have to admit to, to you, Justice Gazzetta, how how I could use Iris to uh, sort of reflect on 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 Dow. Well, it's, I guess the, the the relief sought it, it seems just intuitively makes more sense to me to say that the the, the first the problem of the assessment whether the minister's assessment is supported by the evidence is more squarely in the correctness of the assessment than the other two. That's correct, uh, and and we would argue that the in, in Dow 247.10 does not. The decision of the minister goes to the correctness, whether it's a yes or no, the actual outcome of the determination, but how the minister conducted 
uh, or exercise the discretionary power in no way affects the eligibility to an, a downward adjustment. And one thing I want to address uh, of my friend's argument is that there necessarily has to be an appeal to the Tax Court of Canada when there is a, a de decision of the minister denying a downward transfer pricing adjustment. The first point is, of course, uh, the, if there is no assessment, uh, well then there will, the only forum available would be the federal court. But we would submit that there is no utility in bringing an appeal from an assessment to the tax court at all when the issue is the minister's denial of a downward transfer pricing adjustment. My friend has, has stated that that assessment, which is deemed valid, can only be displaced on an objection or an appeal to the tax court. I'd like to bring you to my friend's uh, condensed book at tab two, and the provision he was referring to is 152 sub eight. And the provision says, an assessment shall be subject to being varied or vacated on an objection or appeal under this part and subject to a reassessment deemed to be valid. In other words, the minister doesn't need to be compelled by the tax court to reassess. An assessment is deemed valid until there's another reassessment, in which case it becomes null and void. And so what happens if the minister denies, as in this case, uh, the downward transfer pricing adjustment? An appeal from the assessment serves no purpose. The tax court's role would simply be to determine, did the minister grant an adjustment or not? That is the fact that informs the computation of income. The taxpayer brings an application for judicial review before the federal court. A successful decision would be that the federal court would refer the matter back to the minister for reconsideration on the basis that the minister committed errors here, there, and somewhere else. The paragraph I referred to, when the tax court says to the minister, please reconsider following this because you failed to consider something in your first exercise of discretion, the tax court can order that remedy. It is in section 171. But the tax court will have to say uh, for reconsideration and reassessment on the basis that the taxpayer is entitled to a downward adjustment. That is what reassessment means. It means that reconsider and reassess if the result of your reconsideration leads you to a reassessment. Yes. The, the, uh, the appellate, what the appellate is searching, what the appellate in essence and character is looking for is a downward transfer pricing adjustment. Only the minister can grant that. The Tax Court of Canada cannot. But, but if I go back to the question that my friend raised that you must have an appeal to the tax court, otherwise you have, a deemed, you have an assessment that's deemed valid and it's always going to be there. You have to protect your rights by having an appeal to the tax court. The only thing that needs to be protected is the ability of the minister to issue a reassessment within the normal limitation period. And there's a prescribed form, it's unilateral, it doesn't require the minister's consent and that normal limitation period can be uh, prolonged uh, indefinitely. So if the taxpayer does that, gets a successful decision of the federal court that says, minister, 
reconsider based on different principles. Let's say in the best of scenarios, the minister being informed of his errors changes the determination and determines that the taxpayer is entitled to a downward transfer pricing adjustment of $3 million. The minister is duty bound to issue an assessment to reflect that decision. It would be highly unusual that the minister would say, I've decided that you're entitled to 247.10 now gives you the right to a downward adjustment because that condition is fulfilled. The minister having found that uh, an, an adjustment is appropriate in the circumstances, but I'm refusing to issue an assessment. That, that is not something that the minister is duty bound to do so and there are remedies at the federal court in the unusual situation where the minister would refuse to uh, issue an assessment. All this to say that an appeal to the tax court serves no purpose unless there are other aspects of the assessment that the appellant wants to dispute. An appeal to the tax court of Canada uh, serves no purpose and it is not necessary. There's no need to have duplicate proceedings. There's only a need to have that discretionary decision set aside by the federal court who has exclusive jurisdiction to grant relief against the exercise of discretion under an act of parliament. May I ask you this when you're talking about utility? Um, if we're looking at review of the minister's uh, discretionary decision to deny downward um, price, uh, transfer, so we're looking at that. In the judicial review context in front of the federal court, there's a known process of getting the ministerial the basis of the minister's decision before the court. And what I'm kind of questioning now is how would that information about the propriety of the minister's decision get before the tax court? And I'm thinking quite practically here in terms of the basis on which that information would be available to the tax court. How would that work? Well, there's not the infrastructure in terms of the rules of the court that the federal court has that requires bringing the record exactly. that is before the minister yeah. before the, the, the reviewing court. Uh, th th there, there's none of those rules because the federal court has never been uh, interested in, 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 well, I shouldn't say that. There, the minister makes assumptions and that has an impact on the burden of proof. Uh, but the, 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 the tax court's role fundamentally was never to review the decision and therefore it was never important to know what facts were before the minister as opposed to the facts that are being led before the tax court. So there certainly, there isn't that sort of rules infrastructure that the federal court has, whereas the federal court, of course, there's a tribunal record, it's a, it's a simplified proceeding, there's 30 days to file a, an application, there's a tribunal record that has to be produced, and affidavits, and it's, uh, I know the appellant is saying that this is a very onerous process. I fail to see how an application is a more onerous process than a full trial before the Tax Court of Canada. Um, but in any event, um, I see that my time is advancing, and I want to have time to speak uh, in Iris. Unless there are other questions, I'm going to move to the other case. I guess my point or my question is, uh, comes back to Justice Jamel's. Is there an institutional incapacity for the tax court to deal with a discretionary ministerial decision? 
there, there is, there's no institutional incapacity in terms of limitation of the powers of ta the, the, the tax court. It's, it's just that, simply put, it would be stretching the nature of an appeal to the Tax Court of Canada to accommodate this administrative uh, uh, judicial review jurisdiction, and Parliament tells us that that can only be done through an express provision uh, of the Act. Will you address standard of review at some point? Of, of in Dow? Mm -hmm. Well, well. We have a clean slate. If, if the court decides that the Tax Court of Canada now has jurisdiction to review administrative decisions uh, under uh, delegated uh, powers, um, well then we would submit that it should be the same, uh, it's not a statutory appeal, an appeal to the Tax Court of Canada in a submission, it is not. So uh, the pronouncement in Vavilov that the appellate standard of review uh, should be applied, would not apply because it doesn't fit the profile of an actual appeal court. Uh, but if we are uh, acknowledging some jurisdiction to review administrative decision, it should be based on the standard of reasonableness. Thank you. Turning to Iris Technologies, uh, in Addison and Lane, this court warned against attempts to undermine the integ integrity and efficacy of the tax appeals process. The appellant in this case brings an application that seeks to undermine the decision of the minister to assess net tax under the Excise Tax Act by seeking declaration, declarations about the minister's conduct, but without seeking to have the minister's assessment declared invalid or unlawful. The result is an application that has no reasonable prospects of success and that was correctly struck by the Federal Court of Appeal. And we will address the three grounds that, uh, that justified striking the notice of application. First, the appellant is seeking and the Federal Court cannot grant pure declarations of fact in respect of the minister's conduct in assessing net tax under the Excise Tax Act. The declaration sought will have no practical utility in resolving any issue between the parties, and as such do not meet the criteria stated by this court justifying a declarative uh, order. But more importantly, in our view, the federal court does not have the power under the Federal Courts Act to grant pure declarations of fact. The second ground for striking the application that we will address is the lack of jurisdiction of the federal court to entertain the application under section 18.5 of the act. Federal court doesn't have the jurisdiction to entertain an application for judicial review seeking declarations related to the minister's decision to assess because an appeal from that assessment is provided for expressly in the Excise Tax Act. Section 18.5 provides that in such circumstances, the federal court cannot deal with the decision in any way, which includes uh, issuing declarations about the minister's conduct in assessing. And as part of Section 18.5, uh, the Tax Court of Canada is an adequate alternative remedy 
that will cure the minister's procedural and evidentiary defects that are alleged by the appellant uh, because the tax court will provide an opportunity to cure all these defects. You're saying that that's, uh, you're costing that proposition in very, very broad terms that uh, it's jurisdiction of the federal court and it would be an adequate alternative remedy. Um, I'm wondering if there is any basis to leave some role for federal court review in the context of particularly abusive conduct by the minister in the conduct of an assessment that where a taxpayer shouldn't have to wait uh, years uh, for, uh, in, a, in a particularly large and complex case, for example. So in the ordinary course, it would be true, what you've said would be true, but it wouldn't be an absolute bar to going for judicial review. It would depend on the circumstances and whether in the context of a large case where the uh, alleged abuse is particularly egregious, whether the federal court should step in because uh, a, 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 a review, a review in the conduct of the assessment, in the context of the assessment, may come too late in the process. It may be ineffectual at that point, and that the the conduct calls out for review at an early stage. So I wonder about the breadth of your proposition because you're casting things very broad, very widely. Well, we are we are casting it. Uh, the, the the Crown's proposition is that if it's the decision to assess that's being attacked, and not something else, the minister has wide powers wide audit powers, information gathering powers, and there are many decisions that might be made in the course of the administration and the enforcement of the Income Tax Act. Uh, and there might be occasion to, uh, there may be the true exercise of discretion, and there, there's, there, there's a lot of opportunity to bring judicial review applications from the minister's decision. But when we're honing in on the minister's decision to assess tax. In our submission, section 18.5 kicks in because that decision to assess uh, is, leads to an assessment and the, the parliament has basically said there is adequate alternative relief. Okay, why do, why do we have the prerogative writs? Why do we have the prerogative writs? We have the prerogative writs to prevent, as Justice Jamal put his finger on it, the abuse of delegated authority. And one of the considerations as to whether you grant relief under the prerogative writs is whether there is not an effective alternative avenue that the party has failed to pursue. For example, an appeal mechanism, right? Ordinarily, if you come before the, the court seeking uh, relief in the nature of a prerogative writ, uh, for example, certiorari, the court will say, well, look, you've got an appeal mechanism, follow that, don't come here. However, there is always a discretion in the court to say, you know what, that alternative remedy, which is set out in statute, is not an effective remedy against the abuse that is alleged in this instance. Therefore, notwithstanding the existence of an alternative remedy founded in statute, we will hear the matter and we will consider granting relief in, in the form of one of the prerogative writs because it is an extraordinary power to intervene where authority conferred by the legislature is being misused. And I think if, if I'm understanding my colleague's question, it, 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 does there not have to be some reserve for, for the exercise of the uh, uh, oversight 
of the federal court, even where there is, in this instance, a, uh, uh, an avenue for appeal on the assessment? Well, it's, 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 it's difficult to answer uh, in the hypothetical. When the minister assesses, the minister is not exercising any discretionary power. This court has stated so in Collins Family Trust. I said delegated authority. I didn't say discretionary right. power. But the, 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 the notion of abuse, uh, abuse of power is tied to the exercise of discretion. The question usually, the abuse of power is when the power is exercised and it, it is outside the scope of the statutory authority and, uh, and, that, and, 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 and that could include pursuit of an improper purpose, for example, for exercising the authority. When the minister assesses, the minister is, is carrying out a mandatory duty under the statute. The minister is charged with the administration and enforcement of the act, and it, it discharges that duty by issuing assessments of tax, by raising tax. And so um, they're, they're, I, we don't want to cast our argument too wide, but there will be, we would submit rare occasions where the minister's decision to assess will be viewed as abusive conduct. And it's, it's, it's difficult for me to portray it. Minister might be auditing and might be requesting documents and there may be a potential for abuse of powers there. But section 18.5 uh, it basically delineates the, the, the powers of, 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 of statutory courts, the federal court, and in this case, the Tax Court of Canada. And if, the, if there is an adequate relief at the tax court, obviously, uh, in our submission, uh, the, tax court, uh, the federal court should not deal with the minister's decision. But this is what happens here. The minister is seeking, uh, is seeking a, a remedy declarations as to the conduct of uh, the minister, which the tax court cannot grant, but the complaint against the minister, failure to afford procedural fairness and failure to gather sufficient evidence, that the tax court can cure that remedy. Um, the last ground, and we'll get back to our three grounds, uh, uh, is the ground with respect to the minister's pursuit of an improper purpose. It presumes that the minister in assessing tax is exercising uh, discretionary powers and that therefore it can abuse these powers. In our submission, the Minister of National Revenue is not exercising discretionary powers and the act of assessing cannot be for a purpose that is unrelated to the purposes and objects of the Excise Tax Act. But to come back to the main point, which is the nature of the remedy that's being sought. The appellant seeks three declarations, but does not seek to have the minister's decision set aside. And uh, we've referenced the decision of this court in Daniels, which found that for a declaration to be issued, it must have a practical utility in the sense that it can resolve uh, a live controversy. The controversy between the appellant, there is no longer a live controversy with respect to this assessment. The, the audit is completed. The minister has denied the input tax credits. The net tax refunds that the appellant was hoping to receive have no, are no longer available. And so 
the live controversy could be settled in the Tax Court of Canada, but there is no longer a live controversy in, in the, uh, with, respect to, uh, with respect to the minister's uh, audit. But isn't is part of the purpose, if, if the circumstances were otherwise, that Iris could take the declarations and put them in the placeholder in the assessment where it talks about whether the minister's decision is or isn't reasonable um, in the calculation of the assessment? Well, the, 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 that, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not sure. The, the question of whether the minister's decision is reasonable would not be something that would be addressed at the Tax Court of Canada. Well, it may be, depending on how Dow goes, how, how the, the, that uh, works out. Because it just strikes me when you're talking, you're saying there's no utility to the declaration. There may be a utility in the declaration if the fractured and bifurcated jurisdictions exist, is to say under the federal court, there's now a declaration that the minister has acted with an improper purpose, without factual foundation, um, and without uh, procedural fairness, that that would uh, be a sufficient sort of examination of, of the record so that if somebody went and questioned the assessment, there would be those declared findings that would show that the decision is unreasonable and that the tax court would have the authority to uh, change the number of the assessment based on that other finding. Well, assuming that's the case, that those declarations are, 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 are going to be used for later use before the Tax Court of Canada, in our submission, it is a collateral attack against the correctness of the assessment. And only the Tax Court of Canada should deal with the minister's conduct. If the minister's conduct is relevant, which we say it is not, to the tax liability of a taxpayer, um, then only the Tax Court of Canada can deal with it and the, tax, and the taxpayer cannot seek declarations in one court that will be put in front of, of the Tax Court of Canada. Okay, it, can I ask you this follow-up question and maybe I'm just seeing an inconsistency that doesn't really exist, but I hear you in Iris saying that the Tax Court would have the institutional capacity under its assessment powers and jurisdiction to do something like review for the procedural fairness, the evidentiary foundation, and the improper purpose of the minister in IRIS, and yet say in Dow that though the, um, the ministerial discretion to uh, deny a downward adjustment isn't the type of decision that should be assessed by the tax court. Is there an inconsistency in your position? Could Because I, I see, shall we say, attention at least. There's the, 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 the chief uh, theme of both arguments is section 18.5, as you will see. Section 18.5 sets out Parliament's intention with respect to the jurisdiction of both courts. And although the outcome is different, the approach is entirely uh, the same. The reason why the outcome is different in that uh, the tax court cannot entertain the review of discretionary decisions is because of Parliament signaling that type of power as being separate and apart from an assessment. And so that the, certainly the, the, the approach is, 
Is it part of the assessment or is it not? Discretionary decision is not part and parcel of an assessment of tax, whereas the minister's decision on whether an expense is reasonable is, is indissociable from the amount of tax assessed. And uh, because it is not, there's no statutory delegation of power to the minister as being the sole person having jurisdiction to decide that issue. Met Bourgeois, I, I, I asked you this before, but can you explain to me why the 18.5 logic doesn't apply to the absence of evidence limb of this, these, this, uh, this, this three-legged beast here? It doesn't apply. Section 18.5 prevents raising an argument based on the lack of evidentiary evidence, evidence that supported an assessment, because um, on an appeal to the Tax Court of Canada, it will not matter whether the minister had evidence to support the assessment. The Tax Court of Canada will determine the tax liability based on an entirely different record. And the fact that the taxpayer rushed, rushed to assess without gathering sufficient evidence will be, let's say, disposed of when the tax court decides whether or not the assessment is too high. Um, and so I've uh, basically uh, I've, uh, expired my time, um, unless there are other questions that uh, will be our submissions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Bourgeois. Any reply? My friend admits that there is no institutional incapacity in the tax court dealing with discretionary decisions. Justice Jamal, you asked, is there a mischief in the tax court dealing with discretionary decisions? And I would say to you that no, there is not. Not only is there not a mischief, but the tax court is obliged to deal with these decisions when they result in an assessment under Section 169. This would be a bit of a revolution for the tax, the tax court, uh, your position. Um, even though it, we could make it fit, it is a bit of a revolution. I, I do agree with you that it is, and it would be a bit of a revolution, but that is why we're before the Supreme Court of Canada. This is not an issue that has been dealt with by this court before. Um, the, the, the point is that the tax court has the jurisdiction to deal with assessments, and the tax court should have the capacity to deal with all elements that directly feed into that assessment. So if it is a revolutionary um, change, I would suggest to you that it is a welcome change. And it certainly will be a welcome change for the many self-represented taxpayers or small businesses that are trying to dispute uh, assessments of tax 
interest or penalties that they believe should have been waived by the minister. How will you get before the court, then the tax court, the evidence that's required to assess whether or not the ministerial decision is either correct, reasonable, not subject to whatever standard of review? How will you do that? Well, I, I don't think that we need to make that determination today. Um, I, I would agree with my friend that there aren't necessarily specific rules dealing with that today, although perhaps for in the informal procedure context, given what the informal procedure is designed to deal with, it would lead to effectively that individual's day in court, which is essentially what that individual wants. Presumably, but, but if there's a clarification of jurisdiction, someone will put in place rules to give practical effect. Yes, uh, Justice Roll, that was exactly the point that I was going to come to, is that certainly under the Tax Court of Canada Act, the rules committee of the tax court can establish rules in order for the court to obviously operate within its jurisdiction. And to the extent that those rules are not in place today, those rules certainly can be put into place. And the legislation explicitly permits that. Um, I would agree with my like friend. The rules committee is going to set the standard of review. Like, I, I, so I don't get you. No, I no, no. The, the, the rules committee would would set the rules uh, to come back to Justice Martin's question about how the evidence would go before the court. Would it be similar to the way uh, a judicial review operates in the in the federal court? It doesn't necessarily have to be the same, but it certainly could be the same. If the, if the Rules Committee wanted to put in place that sort of thing where a record has to be produced, for example. My friend suggested that under Section 152, subsection 8, that a taxpayer would not have to go to the tax court because the taxpayer can simply file a waiver. Um, a taxpayer can't necessarily simply file a waiver because a waiver can only be filed if it's filed within the normal reassessment period. And if the minister, I'll say, assesses on the eve of the normal reassessment period, it may be beyond the end of the normal reassessment period before the taxpayer figures out, oh, I need to deal with this. And at that point in time, the taxpayer can't file a waiver. A waiver is only valid if it is filed within the normal reassessment period. So, and, and there certainly are circumstances where if the minister assesses under a provision where there is ministerial discretion and the taxpayer is challenging that assessment, the minister then, and files a notice of objection, the minister then confirms the assessment. And your only choice at that point, once a notice of confirmation has been issued, is to file a notice of appeal in the tax court. So not only, I'll come back to the point, not only is there no institutional incapacity, the capacity is there and the capacity should be given to the tax court. Your time is up, but I'd like you to answer a question. Um, Mr. Bourgeois said that um, the, uh, the exercise of discretion can depend on fairness principles that are not related to tax principles. Do you have a response, a reply to that? I hope I didn't mischaracterize. 
Uh, well, I, I think, first of all, I'm not a member of the principles that my friend referred to, at least in the context of subsection 247.10, are in fact tax principles. Um, economic double taxation is a tax principle. Uh, the, the point that my friend suggested that there, that an acceptable range of outcomes is not something that the tax court ever deals with. In fact, the tax court, the Supreme Court of Canada has indicated precisely in transfer pricing um, cases that there can be a range of outcomes. So, question. The last question. What do you have to say on the interpretation given by Maître Bourgeois about the words reconsideration and reassessment that we find in section 171b3? Uh, well, I, I would actually answer them the same way that you would have answered them or you suggested, Justice Coquet. Reconsideration, first of all, does not dictate how, necessarily dictate how the minister reassesses. And when it refers to reconsideration and reassessment, it doesn't necessarily require that that reassessment be different from in, in number from the original assessment. What it requires is that it is that in our particular case that the discretion that had been given to the minister, if it was determined to be uh, not exercised appropriately, be exercised appropriately. Thank you. I'd like to thank all counsel for their submissions. Uh, the court will take the case under reserve.